Welcome to In Social Work, the podcast series of the University of Buffalo School of Social Work at www.insocialwork.org. We're glad you could join us today. The purpose of In Social Work is to engage practitioners and researchers in lifelong learning and to promote research to practice and practice to research. We educate, we connect, we care. We're In Social Work. Hi from Buffalo. Happy Thanksgiving, everyone. Around here, we want to reflect on the wonderful quality of life in our community. From our numerous colleges and university to our diverse neighborhoods, endless food options, lively arts culture, incredible architecture, affordable housing, and the friendly and unpretentious nature of our citizens. There's something for everyone. I'm Peter Sabota. In this episode, our guest, Dr. Howard Lipke, discusses the genesis and the core concepts of the programming he has developed to help veterans wrestling with anger issues. Drawing on the principles of rational emotive behavioral therapy, Dr. Lipke describes what he calls hidden emotion articulation, or the heart program. After explaining the important difference between emotions and feelings, he contrasts the heart program with traditional anger management programs. It's his contention that helping vets identify the hidden emotion that underlies their feelings is what helps them understand and prepare for sensitive situations in which they might be triggered into anger. He concludes his discussion with comments addressing the application of the approach beyond veterans' populations, the impact on the treatment for post-traumatic stress disorder, and why this approach is uniquely relevant for use with veterans. Howard Lipke, PhD, is a clinical psychologist who has been providing psychotherapeutic services to combat veterans for over 35 years, and for much of that time also teaching and training fellow mental health professionals. He is a former director of the Residential PTSD Treatment Program and the Outpatient PTSD Program at what is now the Lavelle Federal Healthcare Center. Since retiring from the VA, he continues to write and consult, as well as to provide some direct service to veterans and training for their psychotherapists. Dr. Lipke was interviewed in October of 2015 by our own Dr. Nancy Smith, Dean and Professor here at the UB School of Social Work. Hi, this is Nancy Smith at the University of Buffalo, and I have the pleasure today of being able to interview Dr. Howard Lipke, who's a clinical psychologist who's been providing psychotherapy to combat vets for over 35 years. And uh, you heard a lot about his bio coming in, so I won't go through all of his credentials. But I do want to just say welcome. It's nice to finally have you on this podcast interview. Well, thanks, Nancy, and it's nice to talk to you again. Oh, great. So I'm excited about being able to talk about this topic because anger issues in general, but especially anger issues with vets, I think is something that a lot of people are looking for some good tools with. Could you start by just saying why you decided to focus developing a program on anger issues with vets? It started with I was kind of drafted into the job as a director of an inpatient PTSD program at uh, the VA where I was working. I'd been doing some outpatient work and we weren't getting very good results with much of anything. We were helping people some, but not nearly as much as we want to. And although we can do a lot better now, there's some that, that don't get enough help. The most effective part of the program was done by the director of the psychology department who came in and did a version of uh, rational emotive behavior therapy. 
and he called it Thinking Straight, and it was a interactive group where he presented the principles, the ABCs, and worked with examples from the vets in the community, and they talk back and forth and interact. And so I was looking for something that I thought might add to the program when I came there and started to work, and I was talking to my wife about it, who's a psychiatric nurse, and she thought about the idea of doing something like that directly related to emotion. And we don't do a lot that's really directly related to emotion other than teaching people how to relax and calm themselves down. So I started thinking about it and looking into it, and uh, the old idea of when you do X, it makes me feel Y was kind of the template. As we worked on this and thought about it, what emerged was that anger was the issue, was the main issue that people had. It was the thing that bothered them the most, disrupted their lives the most. And research shows that that's true for combat veterans and for their families, and that's what they always say in the, in the few studies that have been done on what they need and what they want. So anger emerged as the emotion to focus on. And the other thing was about feelings. Although they could identify anger, and actually, if you're talking with a combat veteran and you talk about anger, sometimes they won't say that it's relevant because what they experience is rage. So if you're going to talk about anger, you have to put it in the context of understanding that it's rage and that anger is the name of the family of emotions. As the group evolved, it became clearer and clearer that understanding and identifying what emotions were and what feelings were was going to be central to what was going on and what they needed. Those are kind of the two threads. That's why emotions and and that's why anger. And then over the years, interacting with the vets and finding out what helped and what didn't led to the program that I have now. Okay, so let me ask you a little bit about the program. I think you're calling it the HEART program for veterans. Can you tell me what's HEART? Well, you know, it's always a good idea to come up with a clever acronym. And I think that'll be true for a while until that becomes passe. But it actually started out as the FIBER program. And there was obviously the jokes about the effects of FIBER. And FIBER stood for Feelings Identification and Behavior Rehearsal. And that is you try to identify the feelings and then practice saying them with the positive effect of starting to identify and address and talk about feelings. But that kind of missed the point because what the main point of the program became not identifying feelings but identifying emotions that had not yet become feelings. And so it became more accurately it was about hidden emotions. Okay, I'm going to stop you right there because... I can immediately hear some of my students would be jumping in saying, what's the difference between an emotion and a feeling? Okay. It's a point that very rarely gets addressed, and I think it's really important. For one thing, you know you have feelings when you have them. You know, I feel this or I feel that. But if, and the main premise of the program is something that's, that's widely recognized and acknowledged about anger being a secondary emotion, I think much more frequently than people think. So if anger has a job and it's to push things away, and you know all emotions kind of have behaviors that are attached to them, and it's a secondary emotion, what's it secondary to in the the times where it is? And I think it's secondary to underlying fear or sadness or painful emotions. And anger keeps them from coming up and coming out. Okay, so the feeling is then I'm feeling anger and the emotions may be some of the underlying 
I can't call them feelings. So the underlying sort of body states or things that I'm reacting to. Yeah. And then we get into this universal problem of how do you define emotion? And if you read the expert on emotion, you'll see that it's one of those very difficult things to do that the people who study it most thoroughly are never really satisfied with what the answer is. So you were working, you know, you initially talked about this fiber and then you moved it to heart. Yes, and essentially it was realizing that it's the hidden emotion that, that's the key here. Think, there's lots of semi-successful anger management programs out there. And one of the things that, that the program does, I think, is it systematizes the way we look at the things people do to keep from being angry. And I know this is going to—it's kind of convoluted, but I'm hoping it all comes together at some point. <laughs> at some point here, it usually does when I present it uh, for clients. Anyway, so there's basically, I think, four things that people try to do in anger management programs. And one is teach people to recognize problem situations and prevent them. And I sometimes they don't do this, but I tell clients that if you think a situation is going to lead to violence and you don't want that. Don't go. Get away. So there's some people that push, oh, never run away from situations. But for people, especially the ones that I work with, it can be too destructive. It can lead to regrettable and unchangeable violent situations. So the second one is learning to calm and relax and sort of limit the physiological arousal, which starts, keeps the cycle of anger going. And the third is to deal with the cognitive intellectual aspects of it. So cognitive behavior therapy focuses on two ideas. One is what you're seeing really happening. Are you making assumptions about a situation that aren't borne out? And the other is, is the action worth it? Is the angry action worth it? So there's two aspects of this that are really important. The third aspect of most programs is the cognitive and intellectual. And this is what's commonly taught, I think, is the most important part of managing anger. And there's two components, I think. One component is the person making assumptions. Are they accurately looking at the situation? And the second component is about whether or not the reaction is appropriate to the situation. Is the rage or anger reaction appropriate? And it's really important for people to learn the skills of thinking through things and ideas like this, and those can be very effective. Now, the thing that makes heart different, I think, is that the emphasis is on the fourth issue, the fourth component, and that is the emotion. If people can see that anger is there to push things away and block things, it can also be there to push away and block fear and sadness and other even positive emotions that set people up for fearful situations. So I try to lead with that. And I try to get people, see if people can get one idea to hang on to. And that idea is something they can carry forward and will be the most helpful idea. The idea that anger is a defense, is to protect against other feelings will be the one that's most useful. So that's what you actually start with with your clients? What I do is I very briefly go through the defining and understanding of the emotions and anger. And then I talk about these four aspects of the work. And then I get to the emotion part. And then I push and I emphasize the understanding of that. And taking questions, giving examples, and 
seeing for themselves is they think about and talk about their anger situations, seeing for themselves whether or not it's true. Okay, so then this it's this hidden emotion piece that really differentiates what you're doing from most of those anger management programs out there. It sort of adds a dimension to it. I think they include that, but it's kind of the tail end. You see that in the last chapter and it's de-emphasized. And what I do is I try to put it out in front and emphasize it because if they get that, then it's much more likely that they're going to not get angry in the first place. And so I call it anger prevention rather than anger management. So that's why I try to focus on that because once you recognize that it's fear or sadness or the fear that goes with having a close relationship, then the anger no longer has a job. It's kind of like calling it by its name makes it different. So it sort of takes all the wind out of it at that point. But then you have to deal with the fear of the sadness. <laughs> and so, so it's not a free ride. There was an old commercial about uh, oil filters that said, uh, they got, you know, saying that you should change your oil filter. And the mechanic would say, you can pay me now or you can pay me later. So there's payment involved no matter what here. Got to work through the, the emotions. So let me ask you, what does HEART actually stand for? Because I'm assuming those initials mean something. Yes, it's Hidden Emotion Articulation. In order to name the emotion, you have to find it. And so it's not about the feeling because you know you feel angry. It's about the emotion which you don't know is there and you don't feel it. Now, you don't necessarily have to feel the emotion when you're identifying and naming it. Sometimes just naming it is enough. So let me ask you about the actual application of this in terms of your experience working with veterans. As you start to introduce this idea of the hidden emotion and trying to identify hidden emotions, how does this go over? How easily are people able to get this? It's mixed. Some people get it right away and like it. It makes a world of sense. And there's, but there's this resistance. They're not identifying these emotions for a reason. There's a part of them that does not want to believe this is true. And, you know, there's a part of all of us that want to live in this romantic world of good and evil and uh, no shades of anything and, uh, and righteous indignation and anger is the proper thing to have. And actually, I think some people come for treatment because there's a part of them that wants to think they're doing the best they can already. And as bad as it is, okay, this is what they're stuck with and they get to be angry. And if they don't get to be angry, it's because they can find and, and feel sometimes the fear and sadness underneath. It's not a bargain they want to make. So they put up barriers to it. And I tell them that, and I tell them, who am I to say you shouldn't? It's not my feelings. I'm not going to have to deal with these feelings. You are. So if you're going to address your fear of sadness, that's the cost. And you have to decide whether it's worth it. Whether it's worth it to address those feelings. Yeah, or acknowledge them. But I try to give them a path to show how you would or could if you want to. Ah, okay. That almost makes it more real to people, the possibility that they could address those feelings because maybe there's fear that those feelings are not manageable, that those feelings will engulf them or be too much to handle. Yeah, and when you're working with combat vets and many other people who have been through the horrible trauma, Part of this is dealing with addressing the past. So let's say something happens currently in real time and 
you get in a car accident and you're very angry about it and your anger is debilitating and you know you've got to find the worries underneath the anger and the worries about uh, you know how am I going to come up with the money for something to you know to pay for it and other worries about whether or not you're as good a driver as you thought you were and things like that. That's one thing. But if the car accident reminds you or the driving situation reminds you of a battle you were in when your convoy was ambushed, then you've got a whole other level of fear or sadness and grief to deal with. And so as I can explain to combat vets, especially as I can explain how the current issues and the past fears are related and show how the past fears don't have to be the same way they were. Those flashbacks of feelings don't have to be the same way and paths to process those emotions can be taken, then they're not as afraid to start to deal with the emotions and to acknowledge them. So understanding that there might be ways that I can get help for those things that seemed really overwhelming when I lived through them and understanding that this current situation is connected to those in some ways at a feeling level, like maybe because I'm out of control in the car accident and it brings up being out of control in an ambush situation, something like that. Yeah, they might not even be consciously aware of it, but they know the power of the feeling. And I think this is really important in therapy in general. So when people are blindly told, express your feelings, you know, bring up your feelings, show your feelings, and they don't see a path to not be overwhelmed by them, then it's going to be very tough advice to take. And in fact, sometimes it might not be good advice to take at all. Well, because they've probably had some situations where feelings felt out of control and where they may have lost behavioral control in those situations. So Yes, and with a lot of people, their trauma, combat veterans, and a lot of other people can be lead to behavior that's really been destructive in life. Okay, that makes sense. So that's really, for anger in particular, it seems important for people to understand that function of anger for people, that it does push other things away, things where I maybe have to feel vulnerable or scared, those kinds of feelings. Your comment brought up an interesting point where, the, where you say feel vulnerable or feeling scared. One of the things that I teach and focus on is it's fine to talk about feeling vulnerable in regular conversation. But if you think about it, vulnerability is really not an emotion, I don't think. It's not a feeling. Vulnerability is a state of affairs that leads to a feeling or an emotion. So what I try to do is help people distinguish between these situations because once you call a description of a situation a feeling, then it's very difficult to argue with it because nobody can argue with a feeling. You know, if I say I feel sad, nobody can prove or show that I don't. But if I say that I feel vulnerable, and it, it sets up a situation where my vulnerability is set in stone. But if it's called an idea or a belief, then we can talk about whether or not it truly is a vulnerable situation or what the vulnerabilities are. So that, that's this little side point about part of the program and distinguishing between emotions and thoughts. Right, and that's part of that sort of cognitive behavioral element of understanding the differences and understanding how I have thoughts in reaction to situations. Yeah, but in fact, I think lots of therapists don't really make a clean distinction between feelings and thought and thoughts, and they call a lot of thoughts feelings, which I think can lead to, you know, it's not a central major problem, but it can derail things a little bit. Yeah. So what I hear in your heart program is a lot of the cornerstones of many of the successful evidence-based anger management programs, and then you've added, I would say, value-added by really going into much more depth about this hidden emotion piece that helps people identify 
that function, that anger is serving in their life. Yeah, and so I make that the emphasis. And what that does is lead to exercises. So, you know, we all know that people don't want to do exercises. You know, we don't want to do checklists and things like that. And so I look over what people are offered and suggested. And, you know, clients have a hard time doing this just like anybody else. So what I do is I have one very simple exercise that I ask people to do. And that is on a daily basis, think about what's going to happen that day that might lead you to have more anger than you want. And then simply try to figure out what the hidden emotion would be, hidden by the anger or rage, and write it down. And so basically it's just a, a grid where, you know, the days and there and you just write down an emotion word. The idea is that triggers people to start thinking about this on a regular and daily basis and prepare for what might happen during the day. So very simply, sometimes with somebody with road rage, I'd say every time you get in the car or every day, think about you might drive. And if you got in a situation where you got cut off and you were enraged, what would be the underlying emotion? And it's generally some kind of fear emotion. So they would just write that down. And see, once that connection really takes place, then the anger starts to just seem inappropriate or silly. But again, there's resistance. People want to fight against it because they prefer the anger. And I'm not the first one to suggest this, you know. They prefer the anger to the other emotion. Well, yeah, and then the anger gets to bring that feeling of self-righteousness. Well, essentially what I think anger does is, is people feel a, a power in them. And so sadness, fear, and these other things are emotions that lead to a very uncomfortable physiological even situation. We feel bad. And I think there's people sitting in jail as a result of their anger, and they can sometimes say it was worth it because the powerlessness was so painful, so difficult that they would rather have the anger and its consequences than that feeling of powerlessness in whatever situation uh, was there for them. Well, and I guess this comes back to what you said earlier, which is if the powerlessness that is sort of happening for me right now in a situation is triggering off old powerlessness connected to trauma, then I'm getting really flooded by a lot of that potential feeling and it, that would definitely feel much bigger than that situation might look to somebody else from the outside. And so that becomes a good reason then to go in and do that work on processing the trauma because it sort of reduces my vulnerability to triggers in future situations. Right. They can see the purpose of that much more clearly. So as I present this to people, it's a two, if their problem is they want to have less anger or rage, there's two things. One is to learn these ideas to prevent it if possible and manage it in the specific situation and then do something about the underlying pressure which makes all the more need to have to manage it. If that underlying pressure is not there, you know, I, I tell my clients that, you know, I can get through life pretty decently without knowing any of the things I'm teaching because of, I've lived a very trauma-free life. I've had losses, but they haven't been the kind that one doesn't expect in life. So I don't need these things. My capacity for anger has not had to be developed and doesn't have the same kind of behaviors connected to it that theirs, theirs has. But they have to know these things if they're going to not be so horribly impacted by their experience. 
so I can get by. The irony is I teach it and I learn it and I know it really well. And I'm the one who doesn't need it so much. <laughs> and they do. They don't. And it's up to them to give this to themselves. And I really make it clear that I'm, you know, I'm the hired help. I'm not the doctor in charge. They ask, what's the definition of destructive anger? And they expect me to give some kind of scientific answer. And my answer is, you define it. I can't decide for you what's destructive. And somebody else might say, well, you know, there's obviously destructive behaviors you want to help people eliminate. And my response is that if people can just get rid of the anger and rage that they find destructive, there won't be much of a problem with it because most people don't want to live that way, or at least are ambivalent about it. So let me ask you about this issue of anger for vets. What is it about anger and veterans that these issues are especially relevant? Well, I think there's a few things. One is the amount of fear and pain and loss they've had to suffer with, and and mostly at very young ages, creates the need for a lot of strength to whatever's going to block it. And the second most endorsed problem is that emotional numbness. That's the one when I ask vets, what what do you want to help with? That comes in second. Occasionally it wins. Numbness over anger, you mean? Yes, occasionally it's more of a problem, but usually it's anger and rage. So that numbness is what blocks the first line of defense against the overpowering painful emotions. Now, I should mention this. I have a client who once referred to that as callousness rather than numbness, which I think is terrific because it really makes it clear. Because what's a callous? A callous is a piece of dead skin covering up a sensitive part. You know, if you have one on your hand, a sensitive part of your hand. But if you continue to put stress on that callus, it breaks, then the very painful part is exposed and it hurts more. And so this is very much like what we call emotional numbness. This kind of barrier of not feeling protects us and protects them. They've got to build it up in military training works to build this up. It protects them really well until it breaks. And then the amount of pain is increased. So anger and numbness, actually, in military training, a certain amount of that might be helpful. Is that what you're suggesting? Oh, it's essential. Yeah, and and I make it clear that I understand this. And the solutions of numbness and anger to block fear and sadness in a combat situation is absolutely essential. If you don't teach that to people and don't train that into them, they're not going to be able to function. I mean, how do you get off of a plane into a combat zone? You know, I tell them, look... Put me untrained on a plane and send me to a combat zone, you know, the first issue is going to be how are they going to get me off the plane? But they all got off the plane. And I'm not saying that, you know, I could, you know, that I'd never get off the plane, but you could train me to do that too, you know. It's, but they start to then see, I think, that how much this way of dealing with emotions has been integral to their survival in a combat situation. And then the next step is to see whether or not those solutions to pain and hurtful emotions is now protective or destructive. Then they run into a situation very often where they look at the world, they're saying, oh, it's hypocritical. The world's this way or that way. And they had to do that in order to survive in combat. You have to see people as either the good guys or the bad guys. You got to judge them by their clothes on a life and death basis. If you don't do it, you and the people around you are less likely to survive. So part of what's important is making that transition to 
having a more nuanced way to live in the world where you're not dominated by these powerful emotions and reactions and life or death kinds of situations and see that it's different. So I can really hear why this would be the core of work that one would do with veterans. Can you say a little bit about where you see your program might fit in for other types of folks who are seeking help for other reasons or or maybe not seeking help but might want to consider it? Yeah, you know, back I think in the 60s and 70s, I remember, maybe the 70s, I remember there was a big physical fitness book. It was very successful. I think it was the Royal Air, Canadian Royal Air Force Physical Fitness Program. And it was a big seller. And I think it, it worked because I figured, well, if it's good enough for the military, it'll sure be good enough for me. And I actually did it for a little while, and it, it was good. I, you know, I liked it. <laughs> but the point is that this, if you have this basic understanding, it can apply to people who have less of a problem or less frequent problems with anger and rage. But there's people who are not in the military who have equivalent problems. A friend brought me into her classroom with kids who had dropped out of school and then had come back to her class, and it was uh, an English class, and she wanted me to do this program, and I wanted, and I wanted to do it. And I presented the ideas, and so these were people that were mostly too young to even be in the military, but they got a lot of benefit out of it. She said afterwards that when they were discussing the books that they were reading, the novels, that they were able to use the principles even in understanding the characters in the books and obviously could use it for themselves. So, and I'm not a, a veteran, and I don't teach anything I haven't found useful. So there's two examples. <laughs> the kids in the high school class, and it helps me. So. <laughs> Those are great. Well, then I, I'm thinking that probably in couples, this sort of thing would be handy a lot because a lot of times I'm thinking back to my therapy work with couples that anger is often, again, the thing that comes up in you know people's fights with each other and whatever, and being able to work with hidden emotions would be much more fruitful direction than just a straight anger management approach. Yeah, I don't see couples for, on a long-term basis, and I haven't. What I do is when I work with the veterans in individual therapy, I ask them if they want to bring their partner in or a family member in to explain these ideas. And they frequently do, and the, the partner and the veteran really always give me positive feedback about the understanding, how helpful it was, and how they could see the patterns clearly for both of them. And I also do it in groups sometimes and include uh, partners. Hmm, okay. Well, now, let me ask you, it sounds like you've seen really good responses to this in your own clinical work. You know, in this day and age, everyone's focusing on evidence and doing research. And have you done any of that? And if so, what have you found? And if you haven't, what are you hoping to have happen with this? Well, the only research I've been able to do is kind of program evaluation research. And, you know, there's lots of kind of evidence. And we can't just go by what we think we're seeing. We have to have somebody else see it, too, and maybe get more objective than that. So when I give clients anonymous surveys... I find them, here's a big surprise. They say it's very helpful. (laughs) The results are always, you know, if it's a five or seven point scale, they're always in the, generally in the sixes and sevens. And what's more important is there's almost nothing at the not helpful or harmful end of the scale. Now, that doesn't mean very much to anybody else, but it means to me 
that besides just them telling my face that they like it or telling other people in the work in the program they like it, it's something that's a little better than that. But one of the difficulties in this kind of work in working in VAs and is you can't give half the people the program and the other half not without it being a very formal, very thoroughly vetted and considered research project. And anytime you embed something in other treatment, it's going to be difficult to tell what's meaningful or what, you know, what mattered or what didn't matter anyway. And I'm just saying that it's, it's very difficult to research in that context. Now, I haven't had the chance to take it outside of there. It's, it's very difficult research to do. So I suppose I can go to an employee assistance program and say, well, let's do a controlled study and see if this works or not. But still, their obligations are to try to help people not to do research. So it's hard to deprive somebody of something that, whose elements are already established as fairly successful. Right. Well, and some of this would have to be with the role that you've been in. So if there were somebody who listened to this podcast who decided they'd like to actually to try to move this research to a more formal study level, that's something that would be of interest to you? Well, I think it would be beyond interest to me. It's the kind of thing where I'd say, hey, Nancy, let's start over again. Let me see if I can get this even better. <laughs> so I don't want to take the chance of losing anybody who might want to do this kind of thing. But there's other questions about research, too, that Well, I did kind of a little difficult research project with college students where I tried to see, I tried to, with very short versions of the emotion part, the cognition part, and the uh, relaxation or calming part, giving them in different orders, I tried to see if things added to each other. And I got results that showed, yes, these pieces added to each other, but it you really couldn't make much sense out of it. You couldn't prove anything with it. Now, the other thing that got me doing this and and doing something original also had to do with research. And that is that I looked at the success rates and the success reports on research on other methods. And summaries say, oh, yes, this cognitive behavior therapy is effective for the treatment of problem anger. And if you look at these things in depth, it doesn't nearly mean what you would think it means. Sometimes, you know, in some of the even most highly regarded studies, they'll do a pre-test and a post-test on anger. And if you look at the, and they get an effect size of one, which is you move the score one standard deviation. So let's say in practice it could mean they used to have a score of 110 and now they have a score on the average it's down to a score of 100. And that might be an effect size of one, but what it ends up being is that the people who have finished the program and are reported to be successful still have a high enough anger score to start the program over again. And so the outcome research on the effectiveness of anger programs as they are is not strong enough to suggest that you shouldn't keep trying to change them and make them better. Okay. So then there would be value in pursuing ways to add on to those or to find elements that can bring score into a range we would hope would be less problematic for people. It's not like they're curing people and if you don't do what they're doing, they'll still have the disease. If this was physical illness, if it was a rash or skin condition, This is like saying, you know, we got it from 20% of the skin surface to 15% of the skin surface, and we now have an effective treatment. So let's put our research funds into something else, or let's not try something else. The research is not strong enough 
to keep us from trying other things that make sense and see if we can do it a little better. Okay. Well, so I did want to say that I had a chance to look through your book, which outlines some of this program, Don't I Have the Right to Be Angry? And I was just impressed with how clearly written it was and how accessible in terms of someone who could read this and take a lot away. So I think if there is a researcher out there who would like to actually take this to a controlled study level, it sounds to me like you've got a lot of pieces that are in place where somebody could then do that to begin to explore. Yeah, I'd love to hear from them. And if you go to my website, howardlipke.com, You'll see there's an advertisement for the book that there's contact information for me. Well, listen, Howard, I really appreciate you taking the time out to talk a little bit about this program because I still think that, that anger is it's emotion that people are really still struggling with a lot, both trauma survivors, but as a culture in the United States, we seem to have a lot of trouble with it. So it certainly suggests that we have a lot to gain by learning more about it. Well, thank you very much. It's really delightful to talk to you again, Nancy. You've been listening to Dr. Howard Lipke discuss hidden emotion articulation with veterans on In Social Work. Hi, I'm Nancy Smith, Professor and Dean of the University of Buffalo School of Social Work. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We look forward to your continued support of the series. For more information about who we are as a school, our history, our online and on-the-ground degree in continuing education programs, we invite you to visit our website at www.socialwork.buffalo.edu. And while you're there, check out our Technology and Social Work Resource Center. You'll find it under the Community Resources menu.